Do you ever feel like throwing up your hands in exasperation and crying out, there is simply no justice? Before you give in to cynicism, join us for this edition of Truth Encounter. As we turn to the close of Revelation chapter 6 today, we see powerful political rulers shaking their fists at God and defying Him. Do they get away with this arrogant rebellion? Is there an ultimate divine king who will settle all these questions about justice and the need for evil to be punished? Let's join our Truth Encounter Bible teacher, Dave Wordson, as he uses the example of a swiftly flowing Montana River to help us picture the powerful current of divine judgment that accelerates as we move further into the climactic book of God's revelation. Dave? As soon as I mentioned, I've been in Montana. The very first thing someone says, well, did you get to do some trout fishing? Well, how do you go to Montana without doing that? And we did have the privilege of floating the little bighorn and doing some trout fishing. And that day we caught over 20. And so I had my fill of brown trout. And we didn't really eat any. We just chucked them back because I'm not into eating. But uh, we had a great time. But one of the things I enjoy even more than just floating in the river, I love getting out, just like you saw in the river runs through it, getting on your waders and you just get out in these beautiful mountain streams and the big mountains are there in the background and you just begin walking up the stream, working that fly and it takes several hours to learn how not to snap off the stupid fly on the backswing. But sooner or later you eventually figure out how to work that fly and that's really, really the fun part. But I have this horror Because as you're working up the stream, sometimes you can get so concentrating on catching the trout and working that fly that you can step off into this hole. And I have this horrible vision because I've heard of some Montana people, even some experienced fly fishermen that have stepped off into a hole. It's too deep. It fills their waders up with water. And you can imagine what happens when your waders are filled up with water and the current just sweeps you away. And every once in a while as you're working up the stream and concentrating on that, you get in a little bit deep water and the the strength of that pull of that water begins to pull you down. And it's frightening every once in a while to feel that pull. And it raises the issue, who can stand? As we return to Revelation chapter 6 today, that's the big question. It's like as we're going through the book of Revelation, this incredible current... As we've been coming through Revelation 6, we started out with the four horsemen. We had the white horseman ride forth, the Antichrist. He generated, instead of peace, he generated war on the earth, generated the red horseman. Then we had a black horseman that represented the plague of famine and disease and illness. And then we closed with the pale, ghostly horseman of death. And then we had the martyrs that were underneath the the throne crying out to God. And then we finished with the sixth seal. As the Lord Jesus opened up the sixth seal of the book of destiny, it's like we came to a great crescendo. And we had this tremendous uh, end time. You know, you could hear the, the mountains are moving and the lightning's going off. It's like a great big thunderstorm. And the book of Revelation is signaling us that the current is increasing. And the issue that's raised is as the enemies of God raise their heads against God. You'll notice in verse 15 of chapter 6. Then the king of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave, and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they called out to the mountain, to the rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of, of, the, of his wrath has come. And then it asked this question, who can stand? 
we live in a world where the justice of God is not being done. We live in a world where you see a lot of things that aren't right. You live in a world where you, you, when the injustice comes coming over your head and it just overwhelms you, you get really frustrated and angry. And you can cry out, where in the world is God? Why didn't he do the right thing? Why does he allow the wicked to prosper? Why doesn't he deal with criminals that violently rape and, and murder and steal and destroy? Why didn't he do that? That's the question that's written in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is answering that question. The book of Revelation says that as we accelerate towards the end of time, towards the second coming of Christ and the institution of his thousand-year reign, that slowly but surely the pace of God dealing with this planet is going to accelerate. And what we're watching in the book of Revelation is God beginning to shake the planet. During our time now, he comes gently and quietly, and he comes to every one of you, and he comes with a message of grace. He comes with a message of forgiveness. He comes with a message of the blood of Calvary. He comes with a message of his resurrection, and he invites you to respond to him and trust him. And he won't bulldoze you. He won't knock you down for the most part. Instead, he'll let you even walk away from him. He'll let you reject him, just like he let the rich young ruler do that. But I want you to know that it's, it's very important not to reject the still, small voice of the Spirit drawing you to Christ. It's absolutely important and strategic that you deal with Christ with integrity. That you don't just let my words come in one ear and go out the other. That you don't let the teaching of the Word of God impact upon your soul and then not have any effect. Don't play act. Don't have a double life. Respond to the work of the Lord. A lot of you are going through a lot of different needs in your family, needs with your kids, needs in your marriages, wondering about the future, wondering about what your decisions are going to be. I want you to know that Jesus is here for you, but you've got to deal with him with integrity and truth. And what you can do is when you respond to his still small voice and you let him transform you, that instead of experiencing his judgment and his judicious wrath, you've experienced his amazing, wonderful grace. And oh, I pray that every single one of you will be experiencing that kind of acceptance, that kind of joy in his presence, that kind of intimacy with him. Because that's the only thing that will last. Families can go. Marriages can collapse. Life physically can begin to just collapse around us. But the precious truth of Jesus sealing our hearts and keeping us eternally lasts forever and ever and ever. As we go out into the world marketplace this week, there are those that instead of responding to the work of God, instead of listening to the still small voice of God, they get angry with God. They curse him harder and harder and harder. They reject him harder and harder and harder. They can even reject you that follow him. And life becomes filled with this tremendous divide between those that love Jesus and those that reject him. And that's what's happening as we accelerate in the tribulation period. The enemies of God, is, as God begins to pound on their lives, God begins to judicially judge them for what they're doing wrong. But even at this point, as we're going through the book of Revelation, God is saying, respond to me. Instead of calling to the mountains, call to me. Instead of calling to the rocks to destroy you, call to me. One of the most agonizing things about the pastorate is that I'll work with people and they'll actually be saying, bring me death. I don't deserve anything but death. When they should be saying, dear Lord Jesus, I admit my sin to you. I can't believe it, but you died for me on Calvary. I want you to come into my life. Fall on me, Jesus. Don't cry to the rocks to fall on you. Cry to the rock 
to get in you. You understand that? And that's the terrible antithesis in the book of Revelation. Here are the enemies of God, but even when they're rebelling against God, if they'd only call out to the rock, they could be saved. And many will. We're going to learn in the book of Revelation. Many will respond, but many will become harder and harder and harder. And the big question that's raised is God begins to shake this planet as he begins to bring about his justice on this planet. Who in the world can stand? Just like Dave standing in that trout stream and the current is accelerating. You can feel it pulling you into a deep hole of destruction. Who can stand? And right at that strategic point, John the Apostle breaks the flow of the book and says, let me answer that question for you. There are those who will be able to stand And the book of Revelation chapter 7 introduces us first to the group that we're going to study this week, the 144,000. Look what it says in chapter 7 verse 1. After this, after experiencing the six sealed judgments of chapter 6, after this I saw four angels, four servants, supernatural servants of God, standing at the four corners of the earth. We'll use the expression in English, like the four corners of the globe. And what we mean by that is the entire earth. In the ancient world, they're not saying that the revelation teaches that the world is flat. It's just a way of picturing the whole world. And in the ancient world, they often viewed the diagonal winds, the winds that blew from the corners of of a rectangle, as being the destructive winds that would bring destruction and death. And what the picture here is that these angels are restraining these physical winds. They're going to come upon the earth. And they produce this great stillness to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. It's a powerful picture. As Texans, I think we can understand it probably better than most people. Many of you have experienced the deadly stillness before a tornado. All those that live all through the Midwest of our country, Nebraska and and Kansas and Oklahoma and Texas, we all know that horrible stillness when there's not a leaf moving, nothing's moving. That's the picture here. And we know that those of us that have lived in Tornado Alley, we know that when it gets that still and it gets that dark, that there might not be a leaf moving, but you give it a few more seconds and everything around us is going to be moving and we better find some protection. We better get in our cellar that's going to sustain us. That's the picture that's used here. But I want you to see there's great comfort for us as believers. Because what these verses are showing us is that even the horrible destructive forces of nature. Romans 8 tells us that right now all of nature is groaning. And there's a twist in nature. It's not the perfect expression of our creator, the way it was designed to be in the Garden of Eden. And it's not going to be the way he really wants it until he creates a new heaven and new earth. And that's why we live in a world where we hear about terrible tornadoes and we hear about horrible monsoons and horrible hurricanes. And in the tribulation period, that's going to accelerate earthquakes, terrible storms. And what this angel is saying, what what the text is saying here, that these four angels that are actually controlling and restraining these horrible, destructive, physical forces, they restrain them. They restrain them until God's able to do a very special thing. Because in verse 2, we see a second, a, a fifth angel coming. They said, I saw another angel coming up from the east. He had the seal of the living God. This fifth angel is coming from the east. If you think of John the Apostle being on the island of Patmos, what's east of Patmos? Obviously, Patmos is in the Mediterranean. 
If you look to the east, you're going to see the land of Israel. What's east of Patmos is Israel. It's very interesting in the scripture. East is the place from which redemption, from which salvation comes. For example, you have the Garden of Eden being in the east. You have the Psalms picturing the Messiah coming like a star, like the sun that rises in the east would be a picture of redemption. And so all the way through scripture, there's several instances where we have the hope of redemption, the hope of salvation coming from the east. The hope of redemption comes from the promised land. And so we could take from John's imagery here that this angel that's coming from the rising of the sun from the east is going to bring the protection of the ultimate sun, the S-O-N sun, that's going to provide some provision for his people so that they'll be able to stand. Notice it says that he has a seal, and it's the seal of the living God. In my own life, I have one seal. Wall in the Lane several years ago gave me a really neat Christmas present, and I've used it ever since. And this is my seal. It's the Wurzen seal. A lot of you know that I have many books. Everybody that comes and talks to me in my study, they always comment. They look around, and they say, man, where'd you get all these books? Well, you know that books for a pastor are like tools for a carpenter. And that's how I'm able to figure out, you know, listen to what the Lord is saying. It's a great thing. You can have Jonathan Edwards teach you and Augustine teach you and all these great men of God and women of God that have lived down through the centuries. And that's why I have all those books. But Mary will be the first to tell you that one of the things I do is that I loan my books out. And many of you have come for counseling and I said, man, I got just the book for you. And I'll look up on the shelf and I'll go, man, what did I do with that book? Because I already loaned it out. And so this is where this comes in handy because this is the Wurzen seal. And if I take this and put it on the first page of the book and press down, it makes a really nice circle. It has my name in it. It says property of Dave Wurzen. So if you borrow my book and you look in the front, you need to return it this week. No. But a seal, what it means is when my book is sealed with this seal, it means the word and seal means it's my possession. That's what a seal means. A seal marks that the book belongs to me. We have some of you are notaries. A seal that from your notary assures that the document is protected, that it's accurate, that it's truthful. That's where we use seals. In the ancient world, they didn't use a great big honking thing like this. The Oriental monarchs would wear a ring on their finger. A lot of you remember in the story of Joseph, it says that Pharaoh gave Joseph his signet ring. It would be a ring that he'd wear in his finger. They would seal documents like with a little piece of clay, and the king would seal it with that ring. And that would mean it was the possession of the king. It was protected by the king. It was under the care of the king. And that if you messed with that, whatever was under that seal, you would be in bad, bad trouble. And that's the imagery that the Apostle John is using. He's saying that this angel has been designated by God to designate as belonging to him. Under the protection of God, under the care of God, under the, under the watchful guidance of God and, and eyesight of God, there's going to be a very select group. It says, then I saw another angel coming with the seal that's going to designate ownership, protection, and all those things I've been sharing with you. And it's the seal of the living God. I want to talk for just a minute about the idea of the living God. That's a very powerful way to refer to God. I want you to know that we serve the living God. 
You see, what would be the contrast of that? You see, all the ancient world, the ancient world worshipped all kinds of gods. In the culture where John was ministering, they worshipped Venus, they worshipped Roma, they worshipped the, they worshipped the Caesars, they worshipped, many of them worshipped just the political power of Rome. The ancient Israelites constantly wrestled with idols like Marduk, who was the great god of Babylon. In our culture today, you're going to go out among many people that worship dead gods. You say, Dave, what do you mean by that? Many of you are going to go out among people that just live for getting ahead in Microsoft. In other words, they're just big executives and they're just plunging ahead in the whole meaning of their life. Some of them might even be your bosses or some of them might be working underneath some of you. But their whole vision in life is just to get ahead, just to get power, just to get prestige. And when you as a believer are interacting with them, you can be intimidated by them, you can wonder about them, and sometimes you, as you, I know, because I feel it myself, when you walk into a big Fort Worth office, or you walk into a big Dallas office, or you go flying somewhere and end up with a big, powerful multimillionaire out in Los Angeles or something, for a sales call or something, you can feel like, man, this person has the, they have life by the tail. They have everything I could ever dream about. They have all that I ever need. I want you to know that you, if you have Jesus in your heart, you have connected with the living God. You know what that means? One day, when everything else dies, when you're connected with him, you're going to be alive. That's the only thing that keeps us going. And doesn't just keep us going, but it keeps us going with great joy with great love, with great hope, with great anticipation. And we can challenge the young people, man, you need to go for it with the living God. His son will come through for you. His son will guide for you. If you'll build your life upon him, it will really work. It's so important to connect with the living God. Boy, yesterday I had the neat privilege of of joining Eric and his beautiful fiancée, Devin, in marriage. And Eric grew up in our church. He grew up in our Awana program. He grew up even after he worked in Awana. He continued to work in his, as a young man. And he went away and got trained in music. And now he's teaching right here in our town many of our children music. What an incredible privilege it was to have Eric. As, as we started doing the, the, the rehearsal on Friday night, Eric began the entire rehearsal by saying, I just want to tell you as my friend and as my family that's close to me, I just want all of you to know that before I even met Devin, Before she met me, the Lord independently brought both of us to the place in our lives where we said it's going to be nothing but Jesus. And Eric shared this verse, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. He said, I want you to know that our love together was born out of that decision. We finally came to the place in our young, early adult life that it was going to be Jesus, the living God. And the Lord is a good God. Isn't he a great God? He brought Eric into a home to teach jazz saxophone to uh, little Ryan. He had no idea that Ryan had a big sister. And there she shows up from university visiting for the weekend. And love begins to grow. What a joy it was to see another couple starting in marriage. Grounded in the living God. Amen? Ground your lives in the living God. Don't let it just be words. Because he's a living God, he's going to be alive for you this week. He's going to be guiding you this week. He's going to be comforting you this week. Hang on to him. In fact, really let him hang on to you. Recognize that he's holding on to you, the living God. Mary and I left that joyous scene, a celebrating scene, a rejoicing scene. It's one of the greatest joys of my life. 
It's awesome to have, have the living God continue to work in people's lives. But Mary and I left that scene of great joy. Eric and Devin's marriage and went over to see Albert. It took him a long time to get Albert dressed. It took us a long time to come into the room. They wheel Albert out. And here's one of my dearest friends. Really the one that the Lord used and just brought Mary and I very close in, in the early days of our church. In fact, they were so intimately involved in moving us out here along with many of you others that are sitting here today. You know, and it's really tough. In fact, I think Mary gets a much more reaction. As soon as he saw Mary, he began almost to cry. And you just wonder if there's any reaction at all. When he went to pray, he drew our hands into his chest. But he doesn't talk to us at all. Just a shell, just hollow. How do you deal with that? Well, you know, it was really fascinating. Mary and I had to wait while they were getting Albert ready. And I walked down the hallway, and here's these ladies pushing around asking us when the train's going to leave. And... You know, you just have to have a good sense of humor. Says, I think it's going to be at 11 o'clock. I think if you wait at 11 o'clock, I think the train will leave. And somebody else asks you some cock and bull story, like, you know, like normal people, only they're not normal at all. Everything's really weird. Everything's topsy-turvy in an all-timers unit. And, man, if you want to get your feet on the ground, you need to go and visit an all-timers unit. Because you'll look around, you'll see powerful executives. You're going to see powerful women that were beauty queens now they're elderly and they have their nails done exquisitely, but they're just, a, just not even there mentally. And you're going to have to evaluate, do I still have anything? Do I have anything at all that's still holding there? And there in the wall in the Alzheimer's unit was Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And you go right down through those incredible words of Jesus, and you look around and say, you know what? The resurrection and the life, the living God, is still here. Aren't you so glad that Jesus didn't say, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the intelligent, blessed are those who are strong physically. Aren't you glad I'm so glad Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in their spirit. Because all of us can be that. As I look into Albert's hollow eyes, and he can't communicate with me at all, I'm just so thankful I have a living God that gave Albert his personality. All of you live for about two years of your life. There's a few select few of you that remember before you were two. You were here on this planet for two years and you were totally unconscious you don't remember hardly anything slowly but surely your personality began to blossom and grow and it's been blossoming and growing ever since but as you grow older disease and neurological problems and different needs physically can begin to cause your consciousness to go dim again what are you going to have then what are you going to have then that should scare you to death and I hope that you'll get scared enough to grab a hold of the living God because Albert has the living God. I can cry and Mary and I can weep as we leave there. But you know what? There's going to be a day where Albert looks at me in the eyes again. And he'll talk to me. And he'll rejoice with me. And we're going to swap stories again. And we're going to talk about all that he did in building our church family together. Because Albert has the living God. Do you? Isn't it great to have a Savior that can handle every part of life? Broken marriages, 
physical diseases like Alzheimer's? Aren't you great that you've been sealed with the living God? That's what this text is about. Even during the tribulation period, the loving daddy in heaven, before he begins to execute his judgment on planet earth, he says, hey, wait a minute. I've got those that are mine, those that are my possession, those that belong to me, and we're going to seal them with my seal of protection and guarding and care and assurance that they're going to be safe with me forever and ever. That's what it means to be sealed with a living God. It says that this angel called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. He said, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. And so forth, right down through enumerating every one of the tribes of Israel. And finishing with the tribe of Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, 12,000. Who are these 144,000 that are especially designated as the servants of the Lord? Well, there's been a lot of interpretations. And traditionally in church history, some of you have been raised in maybe a reformed tradition of churches. And they would hold that this is the church. And they would hold it because like in a passage like 1 Peter chapter 2, we are designated as the new priesthood, the new people of God. And I want you to know that I believe that with all my heart, that because we believe in Jesus and enter the new covenant, that we enter into the promises of God. I believe with Paul that we are the true sons of Abraham. But I have problems exegetically reading this passage and just jumping to the fact, well, it seriously represents us. That tradition would say that what this 144,000 is, it's a symbolic number, 12 times 12 times 1,000. It's a symbol of completeness. If that were so, it's a very strange way to introduce completeness because why not just say all the tribes of Israel, all the children of Israel? That would be the way I would say if I was using it symbolically. Just a straightforward reading of this text shows us that there are 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. The argument that we lost 10 of the tribes in the northern kingdom when the Assyrians came down is fallacious because the Old Testament makes it very clear that many of the northern kingdom tribes recognized Hosea's message. They believed it and they fled to the south. And so you have the 12 tribes after the destruction of the northern kingdom. In fact, right in the book of James, chapter 1, you have a very strong example that we know in the first century that that the Bible could truthfully say that there were 12 tribes. James, writing very early in the history of the church, when the Jerusalem church was dispersed from Jerusalem, and one of the very first epistles I believe that was written was the epistle of James. James writes to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. James was the leader of the Jewish church. His church experienced the persecution that scattered them throughout, basically very much up into northern Asia Minor. And he's able to write, I write to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so in the first century, we could argue that that God knew where the 12 tribes were. I believe that a straightforward reading of Revelation 7 is saying this, that in the tribulation period, God is going to begin to change focus again. Right now, in fact, for the last almost 2,000 years of church history, we shifted from a Jewish-dominant church. The Jerusalem church was all Jewish. Up until Acts chapter 10, when it was open door to Cornelius, did we have a massive infusion. And then with the church of Antioch, we had an even greater infusion of Gentiles. 
And what happened as the first century developed more and more, you could see the work of the Holy Spirit causing Gentiles to respond. You have the book of Acts closing with the Apostle Paul turning away from his proclamation of the Jews, not ceasing it, but recognizing that there's been a hardening and there's a wide open door thrown up into Gentiles. And that's why most of you are Gentiles, not all of you. Some of you are Jewish, and we love the fact that you're a part of the body of Christ, and you're just as much a part of the body of Christ, if not more so than any of us. And we rejoice in this time of grace. But dominantly, the movement is for Gentiles. If you look at the Christian church throughout the world, it's mostly Gentile. And a tragic thing has happened. Get this clearly in your mind, because I want us as a group of believers to be those that go out into the world correcting, correcting this horrible, horrible misunderstanding. What's happened is that the Christian church became institutionalized. It became big business, big money, big organizations. As you look at 2,000 years of history, there was even a time when the Christian church dominated the history of the Western world. Many times it did not act in Christ. It was an almost totally alien to blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are peacemakers. Instead, the very instrument that was the church that was supposed to be used to bring peace and to bring forgiveness, it brought even death against those that would not accept its political power. The Jewish people have experienced the brunt of that. Why is that so? Because the great, great delusion has become that Jesus equals Hitler, equals extermination camps, equals persecution, equals the destruction of our people. And so many Jews that you seek to minister to, instead of hearing about Yeshua, who was Jewish, who died Isaiah 53's sacrifice, who rose again from the dead, instead they hear Jesus organized Christianity, they organized Christianity that again and again has persecuted us through our history. And to tear that misconception away from the reality of Jesus is very, very hard to do. Revelation 7 is one of the places where we can begin to do that. Because you know what Revelation is showing us? God's great love. His people rejected his son as an institution. Their leaders rejected the son of God in the first century. And they were dispersed, just like the prophets said that they would. But those prophets of the Old Testament said they'd also come back home. And I believe that in fulfillment of those prophecies, we've seen the nation of Israel born again. But you know, when Jonathan writes me and says, Dad, there's incredible hatred against Jesus. I can go, oh, there's no hope. There's, there's no way that those people ever respond. And Jesus wraps his arm around him and says, David, wait a minute. Revelation 7 says... During the tribulation period, in one of the darkest periods of planet Earth's history, the Lord God of heaven is going to reach down and he's going to begin sealing. He's going to begin with 12,000 from every tribe. Just taking it literally the way that it reads. He'll begin saving Jewish people. 12,000, because he knows where all the tribes are. And just like he saved 6,000 during the time of Baal, in the time of, of, of the prophet who, with the time of Jezebel, just like he saved, there was 5,000, 6,000 that didn't bow down the knee to Baal. Just like that time in the time of Elijah, in the tribulation period, you're going to say, hey, wait a minute, I've got 12,000, the tribe of Judah, the Messianic tribe. I've got 12,000, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Manasseh. And what we have, I believe here, as we look at chapter 14, we'll look at that later, we have strategic young men. But it tells us that there are young men that keep themselves pure, 
So unlike many of our Christian leaders that are falling into immorality, we're going to have men, 144,000 men that are morally, their message fits the morality of their life. We're going to have men that, that follow Jesus everywhere he goes. In other words, they're disciples of Yeshua. And it said that they keep his word, and they're going to be those that go and begin to propagate, in, in opposition to Antichrist, they propagate the truth of God. These are the beginning of those that are sealed by God. What does this mean to us? You can say, well, Dave, man, I'm not going to be living during the tribulation period of what you told us about Revelation 3 and following about the Church of Philadelphia is true and what you told us about 2 Thessalonians. What does this mean to us? If you've received Jesus into your heart, you've been sealed. You've been sealed. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 says that you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10 says that you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the one that you've been sealed by God with. Those are really important verses. Don't read this just as some future thing and some other people. I want you to know that just as certainly as 144,000, and you can see the 144,000 aren't some elite Jehovah's Witnesses, some select group that, that earned that right because of their good works. That's not what it's saying. These are 144,000 beginning first fruits of God's great harvest of Jewish people during the tribulation period. We're going to read the next time when we say the second half of the chapter how thousands come into the kingdom of God even during the tribulation period because of their witness. But I want you to get it today. Just like the 144,000, you've been sealed. If you've invited Jesus into your heart, Guess what? God didn't just mark your forehead with a towel, which is a sign of the cross. A T, a Hebrew letter T. What God did, God didn't just come into your life and give you a stamp like this. He gave you something far better. The moment you receive Christ your Savior, 2 Corinthians 1.22, Ephesians 1.10, Ephesians 4.30 said this. The moment you believed in him, God sealed you. And he sealed you so tight and so strong, he himself sent his third person of the Trinity to live inside of you. And I want you to realize, like you might have been taught, man, you need to have a certain gift of the Spirit to know that the Spirit is in your life. That's not true. All different gifts. The New Testament could not be clear. There's all different kinds of gifts. Some of you are going to have incredible gifts. Some of you are going to have quiet gifts. Some of you are going to have real visible gifts. Some of you are going to have gifts that are real, not visible. They're more of a quiet, infiltrating leaven. But I want you to be a people of God that rejoices in the gift of God's Spirit. But I want you to rejoice most of all in the gift of the person of the Spirit. I want you not just fascinated with the things the Holy Spirit does through you. In other words, my gift in the, in the Spirit of God is my teaching gift. What I'm doing for you now. And I rejoice in that gift. I just appreciate the freedom of God's grace to minister through me. But I want you to know it's, it's, it'll, be, it'll be deadening to my spiritual life if I focus just on the gift of teaching the Spirit has given me instead of rejoicing in the relationship with the Spirit, my possession by the Spirit, the confidence I have that I'm the child of God because the Holy Spirit's in my life. Just before I started out, I talked to a one of our dear family members, and you know, I asked them how things are going, and usually somebody goes, oh, doing great. And they just said, well, my wife is wandering away, got involved with some people that they shouldn't, and they began, and she's just wandering away. That's agony. That's agony. But you know, the Holy Spirit is inside of us. He says, you're connected with a living God. 
You might lose your wife. You might lose your husband. You might lose your kids. Married mom and dad. And oh, I love them for this. They've been an incredible. I think of it again and again and again. The example that mom and dad had for Mary and I. Because whether it was in a cold Nebraska grave or in a cold Wyoming hillside, as we wept with the loss of an oldest son and a youngest son, mom and dad constantly reminded us as we cried at the family, they said, we still have the living God. Never forget dad's word. He says, I've served my Lord for over, at that time it was over 40 years, and he's always been good, and he's still good to me today. That's sealed with the Holy Spirit. And it's that sealing with the Holy Spirit that means David and John and all of our loved ones that have gone on before us, they're not away from us forever, are they? Amen? And that great hope, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sealing us, marking our lives today, helps us to make it. And not just make it, but make it with joy, make it with confidence, Make it with life-transforming power. Every time I've heard this passage spoken, everybody says, oh, man, these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, they're just so incredible. Boy, can you imagine having that many apostle Pauls? Isn't that incredible? Hey, you're the incredible ones. You get that? Do you understand that? You are just as sealed. Do you believe that? You are just as sealed as the 144,000. And the old big debate, whether they were Jewish Christians or the church symbolic or anything, in the big scheme of things, it's not really that big a deal because the big deal is have you been sealed with the Holy Spirit because you've received the Son? If you haven't, I want you to know you can just reopen your heart to him, you can believe him, you can know him. The message is, yeah, there's 144,000 marvelous Jewish evangelists that will be saved in the future and sealed by God and go out with great ministry. But we've already had the New Testament revelation in Ephesians 1 and 2 Corinthians 1 and Ephesians 4. We already have the great truth. We've been sealed for today. And just like that 144,000, we can go out this week and we can become instruments moving with the Spirit to cause lives to be transformed by the power of the living God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you for Revelation 7. I thank you, Lord, for your control over the forces of nature. As your children today, we want to thank you as our daddy in heaven that ultimately you're in control of even those powerful destructive forces that can seem so chaotic. Thank you, Lord, that when we ask the question, who can stand, that you answer, those can stand who are sealed with my presence. Those that have the mark of my presence upon their life, they have the name of the Son of God, And your name is the Father in heaven engraved upon their lives. And I thank you that as the new covenant believers today during the church age that we've already entered into that ceiling. But we also rejoice, Lord, that we've learned today that you're not going to quit on the Jewish people. That there's going to come another day, a future day, when there will be another son that will be able to write from Israel and say, Dad, instead of Jesus' name being cursed, I want you to know I'm seeing thousands of Jewish people, not just in Israel, but around the world, that are awakening to the fact that Yeshua, not some symbol of the organized structural church, but the real biblical Yeshua, the Savior, Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, and yet risen forevermore. This incredible Yeshua has become the Savior of the Jewish people as well. 
Oh, Lord, I would pray that we'll pray for that day. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for Israelis that even at this moment that are opening their hearts to Yeshua, for the persecution, even from their own people, they have to accept. And, oh, Lord, I would pray that we'll be faithful witnesses in a world that's moving towards pluralism. I pray that we'll be committed to the exclusiveness of the living God. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.